Well, hello, uh, good evening, uh, everyone, and welcome to this uh, January BTOG webinar. It's a masterclass in molecular subtypes beyond EGFR, ALK, uh, and ROS. My name is Sanjay Popat. I'm a professor of thoracic oncology at the Institute of Cancer Research, consultant medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital, and chair of the BTOG steering committee. I'm joined by three experts uh, today. I'm joined firstly by my colleague, Dr. Raffaele Califano, consultant at the Christia and uh, also at the University Hospital of South Manchester. My colleague, Dr. Alistair Greystoke, a clinical senior lecturer and honorary consultant at Newcastle uh, University and the Northern Centre for Cancer Care. And Professor Rachel Butler, head of the Bristol Genetic Diagnostics Laboratory and operational director of the Southwest Genomics Laboratory Hub. Um, we have uh, these three experts to give great updates on where we are in the ever-changing world of uh, uh, genomics, therapeutics, and advanced non-small cell lung cancer. I'd like to welcome everyone on behalf of uh, BTOG and especially our executive team, Dawn McKinley and uh, Gina Stevens, who are around and functioning virtually for all your BTOG educational and additional uh, thoracic needs as required. So do uh, be in touch. A few words of housekeeping. You can submit text questions by typing your questions via the control panel in Slido. And you can do this for at any time and we'll pick those questions up and I'll ask the uh, uh, presenters uh, the, the questions uh, in the meeting. Um, as you've registered, you'll get an email for your feedback. Your feedback is very welcome. Uh, and it's really important that you tell us what we've done well and what we've done badly so we can improve for the next time. And this will of course trigger your uh, certificate of attendance. Uh, you will be able to receive, you will also be able to see this uh, by um, uh, uh, request. It's be da uh, downloadable on the website, and this is also available uh, for CBD points, CPT points, if um, uh, 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 reviewed within time. So I'll move over to our first uh, speaker, uh, Raffaele Califano. Raffaele is going to speak about BRAF. KRAS and insertion mutations that all of you need to know about. Rafael, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Sanjay, and good evening, everybody. Over the next uh, 15 minutes together, I will give you an overview of the data that supports the use of dabrafenib and tramedinib for BRAF V600D mutated advanced non-small cell lung cancer patients. Then I will move on to KRAS mutations with a specific focus on uh, KRAS G12C inhibitors. And then I will show you some therapies in the pipeline for EGFR exon 20 insertions. I would be very happy to take your questions at the end of the talk. BRAF mutations represent about 3% of the uh, molecular aberrations that we can now detect in uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients. The most common is the V600E mutation, which is approximately 50% of the entirety of the BRAF mutations. These patients have got usually adenocarcinoma histology and the, their tumor is usually quite aggressive. In terms of inhibition of the BRAF kinase, this could be directly at a BRAF level with uh, specific BRAF inhibitors such as dabrafenib or bemurafenib. We can also inhibit uh, further down the pathway at a MEC level with MEC inhibitors such as uh, trametinib. The BRAF113928 study was a multi-cohort phase two study, non-randomized, which looked at patients with non-small cell lung cancer harboring BRAF V600E mutations. Cohort A looked at dabrafenib monotherapy in the pre-treated setting, whilst cohort B and cohort C looked at the combination of dabrafenib and trametinib in the pre-treated and untreated population, respectively. Cohort A, single-agent dabrafenib in 84 patients, the response rate was 33% with a progression-free survival of 5.5 months. Looking at the combination, this is cohort B, pre-treated patients, the response rate was much higher, 66% with a median progression-free survival of approximately 11 months, which is not dissimilar to what was seen in cohort C, where the combination of dabrafenib and tramedinib achieved response rate of 64% and a median progression-free survival of 10.2 months. 
On the basis of this study, Dabrafenib and Tramedili was EMA and FDA approved, and is also now available as a treatment in the NHS for advanced BRAF V600E mutant patients. The combination is usually well tolerated. The most common adverse events are fever, fatigue, uh, myalgia, rigors, you may have rash, diarrhea. These are usually grade one or two. For the lab toxicity, uh, we usually see LFT derangements and very rarely hyponatremia. Moving to KRAS mutation, this is a very interesting target, as is the most common molecular aberration detectable in non-small cell lung cancer patients. About a quarter of the patients will have a KRAS mutation. And focusing on KRAS G12C, this is an oncogenic driver that we usually detect in approximately 15% of the adenocarcinoma patients. And the presence of a KRAS mutation determines a stimulus-independent downstream activation with cell proliferation and tumor survival. I'm going to show you very recent data on two KRAS G12C inhibitors. The first one is data from the cold break 100 study. It was a phase one uh, study with a dose expansion, evaluated patients with uh, KRAS G12C driven tumor with a specific cohort of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Primary endpoint of the study was safety, and I'm going to present you some secondary endpoints as well. The most common treatment-related adverse events were diarrhea, LFT derangement, fatigue, and nausea. These were mostly grade one and two. Notably, a grade three or worse toxicity was diarrhea at 5% and ALT uh, derangement at 10%. At the 960 milligrams once daily dose, the response rate was 35.3% with a disease control rate of 91.2%. This is certainly welcome data for this uh, molecular aberration, but the response rate, to my opinion, is somewhat a bit disappointing as it's not the same level of response rate that you would expect from a TKI or a driver and certainly much lower than what we see for ALCO EGFR inhibitors. Patients had a sustained and durable benefit with a median duration of response of 10.9 months, and with a median follow-up of approximately 11 months, the progression-free survival was 6.3 months. CRYSTAL-1 was a similar design study with a phase one to two part, this time looking at the Mirati drug Adagresib, again, pre-treated patients with KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer, Adverse events were very similar to what reported by the code break study with most commonly reported treatment-related adverse events being nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, or LFT derangement. And very similarly, again, mostly grade one or two. The discontinuation rate due to treatment-related adverse events was in the region of 7%. Response rate at the dose of 600 milligrams twice daily in non-small cell lung cancer was 45% with a disease control rate of 96%. Very interesting and exploratory data is the efficacy of this compound in patients with KRAS G12C mutation, but also the presence of the STK11 mutation, which is a negative prognostic factor, and we know that confers an aggressive biology. In this exploratory analysis, patients who had the both mutations and were treated with this compound had a response rate of 64%. And I think that this data, if proven prospectively, would be very relevant for clinical practice. On the basis of this data, now both compounds have launched into phase three randomized clinical trials in the pretreated population against docetaxel. And the results of this study will be very eagerly awaited. Moving to the third part of my talk, EGFR exon 20 insertions represent four to 10% of the EGFR mutation and approximately one to 2% of the molecular aberrations detectable in the adenocarcinoma patients. They are usually exclusive without the driver mutation and the patients harboring exon 20 insertions have got the same clinical features that you would see in patients with common EGFR activated mutations. There is a large degree of variability in the insertion length the sequence and position of these exon 20 insertions. And in particular, we know that 
the insertion on the distal hand will be the one resistant to standard EGFR TKI. The standard EGFR TKI usually do not work in these patients for the rare, except, except with the um, rare mutation, which is the A7637QEA. The challenge in drug development for exon 20 insertion is that the exon 20 insertion mutations are very similar from a structural point of view to the wild type EGFR in the ATP binding pocket. And what does this mean? This means that when you bind the drug to the pocket, we have a very narrow therapeutic window as, you go, as you're gonna have a number of adverse events that you will have when you hit the wild type EGFR, mostly Russian GI toxicity such as diarrhea. So one of the major challenges is the selectivity of these drugs over a wild type EGFR. I will start with one of the drugs which is currently approved for common mutation ozimertinib. It was evaluated at high dose, 116 milligram in a small cohort of exon 20 insertion positive patients. 21 patients in the, is an ECOG-Acrin study from ASCO 2020. With uh, 15 available patients, the response rate was 24%. The disease control rate was 82%, and the progression-free survival was 9.6 months. Podziotinib is a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which was evaluated in the uh, Zenit 20 trial. This is a multi-core study evaluated patients with non-small cell lung cancer harboring EGFR or exon 20 insertion. And the data I'm going to present you is from cohort one, which enrolled patients with previously treated EGFR exon 20 insertion. The response rate in the available population was in the region of 19%, with a, a disease control rate of 80%, and a progression-free survival of four months. In terms of toxicity, this is not a well-tolerated drug. The most common treatment-related grade three and four adverse events are rash, diarrhea, mucositis, and paronychia. There was a 4% rate of treatment-related pneumonitis. And in this cohort, the trial didn't meet the pre-specified primary endpoint of response rate. And I believe that toxicity is an issue with this compound. Very interesting drug is amivantanab, which is a fully human EGFR-MET bispecific antibody, which is active against activated EGFR mutation, T790M, C979S mutation, but also exon 20 insertion and MET amplification. And this was investigated in the ongoing phase one study, Chrysalis. Chrysalis had a part one and part two and uh, evaluated patients with uh, pre-treated non-small cell lung cancer. The recommended phase two dose was dose dependent and the data I'm going to present you today is from core D specifically for patients with non-small cell lung cancer and EGFR exon 20 insertion. Looking at safety, the most common adverse events were rash, infusion-related reaction. Together with that, we had paronychia, constipation, fatigue, and uh, hypoalbuminemia. The waterfall plot showed that the vast majority of patients had some sort of shrinkage of the tumor, and the response rate was 36% in the uh, intention to treat population. It was somewhat higher at 41% in the post-platinum population. And this drug is now launched into phase two and phase three clinical trials. The median progression-free survival was very similar in both cohorts at 8.6 months. And I think this is certainly very interesting in this difficult to treat population. The last drug I'm going to show you is uh, mobocertinib, also known as TAC-788, which was investigated in a phase one to two clinical trial with a phase one dose escalation and then a phase two expansion. And the data I will present today is for the pre-treated patients with EGFRX and 20 insertion from the dose escalation and also the cohort one of the phase two expansion. Looking at a total of 28 patients, the uh, response rate in the entire group was 43%. But it's clear that this drug it has got lower activity in patients with baseline CNS metastasis, where the response rate was only 25%, and the median progression-free survival was 3.7 months, much lower than patients without baseline CNS disease, where the response rate was 56% and the median progression-free survival was 8.1 month. And this is a signal 
that uh, may suggest that this drug doesn't penetrate very well the blood-brain barrier. Looking at toxicity and safety, about a quarter of the patients had a dose reduction due to adverse events. 50% of the patients had a dose interruption due to adverse events, and about 14% of the patients had to discontinue treatment due to treatment-related adverse events. If we look at the main specific treatment-related adverse events, these were mostly diarrhea, nausea, rash, vomiting, and uh, stomatitis. Mostly grade one and two, but certainly noteworthy is the grade three and four uh, rate of diarrhea at 18% and 6% grade three or four uh, nausea. On the basis of these data, uh, TAC-788 was then investigated in the EXCLAIM extension cohort for patients with pre-treated disease, not more than two systemic anti-cancer therapies. This has fully accrued and results of this extension cohort will present at a, a forecoming meeting. So to conclude, it is very important that we perform NGS for our patients as this will be crucial to find novel molecular aberrations I hope I've shown you that BRAF V600E mutation is targetable, and we have Dabrafenib and Trabedenib, which is now approved in the NHS for our patients. There are effective therapies for KRAS G12C mutation and EGFR exon 20 insertion in the pipeline, and hopefully this will be available in the near future. Thank you very much. Great, Raffaele. Thank you for that uh, excellent uh, overview. And I think really we're... we're uh, are now in a new world where we have uh, additional genotypes coming through. The UK has been lagging years behind the rest of the world. Uh, we know that uh, Dabrafenib, Trametinib has been licensed by EMA uh, years ago, and only uh, because of a lack of submission to NICE have we not had it available. So whilst COVID has been a difficult disease, it has at least given us the gift of able to be treating uh, these patients as it's now approved in uh, our, in England at least um, as a COVID special measure. Um, keep your questions coming in. We've got some really uh, uh, good ones. Um, uh, uh, Kasif Khan has asked, what is the phenotype differences between BRAF and KRAS mutations? You know, can we, can we spot these patients as they come in the clinic? Um, or, you know, is it just uh, is waiting for the, the genotype? Uh, it's very difficult to say. Overall, I think KRAS mutant patients will be smoker and non-smoker, whilst BRAF, they're mostly adenocarcinoma, and I would say usually X or light smokers. But, you know, there are reports of BRAF V600D also in the squamous population. And, uh, uh, Raphael, if we come back, we get the, the, the molecular result, and sometimes it comes up with a, um, a BRAF V600D. Uh, or a non-V600E mutation. What, what do we do in that scenario? So the registration study and the bulk of the data was on BRAF V600E mutation. That's where I think the indication lies. There is some uh, retrospective small series on the non-BRAF V600E population where there seems to be a much lower response rate from this combination. And I would not use that in clinical practice for non-BRAF V600E personally. And then the other scenario that we see is we get our we have our patients and we get the pathology report and we've got 95% PDL1 positive and you've geared up the patient for Pembro and we're all ready to go and then your registrar says uh, Dr California have you looked at the molecular results and you look at it and it's got a V600E what do you do in that scenario what you know what what are what are the data suggest that's a, a very interesting question because um Unfortunately, there's no clear answer. All the registration studies for immunotherapy, either as a single agent pembrolizumab or a combination of chemoimmunotherapy did not screen for, or at least you didn't have mandatory screening for BRAF. So we have a number of these patients enrolled in the study, but certainly we don't know their outcome. We know though that BRAF mutations from the French cohort tend to be less, BRAF mutation, at least the V600E patients tend to be less responsive to immunotherapy from the French study. And uh, that will make me more prone to try the combination of Dabraf and Ibentramedinib as a first line before embarking on a chemo IO or single agent pembrolizumab. 
Thank you. So, you know, I think the message you're saying is if it's molecularly driven, give the molecular solution first. Uh, first. And, uh, you know, the data supports that. Um, I'm going to move on to uh, KRAS. Uh, you know, I'm really excited about the KRAS G12C inhibitors. You know, KRAS has been a big problem in lung cancer. In fact, it's the, it's the uh, first oncogene uh, addicted uh, disease that we've come across. We've just not been able to, to, to drug it. What proportion of, of, of patients that coming through are going to be G12C positive? About 14, 15%, which you, as you say, is a big chunk, you know, it's big slice of the pie. So I'm expecting this will, you know, when the, the drugs will be approved, uh, this will be a, a large group of patients that we will have in clinical practice and we will need to be prepared to treat them appropriately. And these patients, you know, uh, sometimes are smokers, sometimes are never smokers. Um, you know, who do we give this drug to and who don't we give this uh, drug to? Uh, are there any clinical features and are there any molecular features? You know, KEEP1 and uh, SDK11, Tom's asked on the chat, you know, which, which molecular features would you not want to give this drug for or do we not have that data yet? So we don't have a lot of data. It seems that uh, as long as you have the KRAS G12C mutation, uh, you're likely to respond independently on the smoking status. But sadly, the data is limited because it's still a fairly small group of patients given the phase one to two design. The STK11, which is a difficult to treat commutation, may be cracked. You know, there is some preliminary data from the Mirati drug um, showing that if you have Commutation, the response rate was 60%. Now, this needs to be taken with a pinch of salt. It's a preliminary, it's not randomized, there's a lot of bias for sure. But, you know, knowing that this commutation usually confers resistance, this is welcome data, I think. Thank you. And you, then you talked about EGFR exon 20 insertions. Now, most of the time, we'd be getting a result back which usually says something like EGFR exon 20 identified full stop. What, you know, is that enough? Do we need to know the precise genotype now? Uh, is what you've um, uh, said interesting? And more importantly, Samarine Ahmed's just uh, messaged in, should we be centralizing care to oncogene addicted specialists? So I think it would be important to understand which is the specific insertion, because there's a, a one specific uh, mutation which could be targeted with afadinib, which is the um, QEA one in 763. The other ones will not respond to the first or second generation EGFR TKI. We need to steer away, and I think they need to be considered for chemotherapy or chemo IO if, if you're feeling that that's appropriate. So I think it's important to understand what's that uh, as, a, as a short answer to your first question. And then in terms of centralizing, I think is, these patients are rare and, you know, as rare as uh, uh, ROS1, for example, I would say, because if you take that into account, it's about 1% of the entire spectrum up to, you know, 4 to 10% of the EGFR mutation. Uh, if you centralize, it's better because you may, uh, you know, so have more expertise within the team. But on the other hand, I think you want to offer these therapies to as many patients as possible. And if the drugs that we will have available are reasonably well tolerated and manageable, I don't see any specific, specific reason not to give it also in the periphery. But at the moment, you know, we haven't got anything approved in clinical practice, but this is coming, I think. And uh, at the, so just about uh, uh, access, uh, well, before I do that, somebody just uh, questioned in, should all our patients undergo MGF? Are we near this in the UK? So I, I guess um, Rachel will go this, but Raffaella, what's your answer? I think yes. So the short answer is yes, and we're lagging beyond a number of other countries. And I think that NGS is going to be crucial given the fact that there's more and more molecular aberrations that we will be able to target with approved agents uh, over the next two to three years. And if you don't do NGS, it will be very difficult to run the single test and the tissue will be depleted very soon. And I still feel that blood NGS or circulating DNA is probably the answer more than tissue, but you will miss a number of aberrations that uh, you will get on tissue only. So there's pros and cons, but NGS overall will be the future. Okay, so I'll just summarize your, your, your uh, conclusions by saying we've talked about BRAF, V600E. This is now funded in the UK. All our patients should be undergoing BRAF, V600, codon, 
uh, testing because we have treatments funded for them. KRAS G12C, very exciting. Uh, we've got very exciting data coming through. We've got trials recruiting in the UK. The UK right. needs to recruit to these trials. And we're going to have, I think, Sotoracid uh, phase two data wrapped well long in a couple of uh, right. weeks. And in EGFR Exxon 20s, we've got to find the 763-764 insertion because you can treat that today with osimertinib or afatinib or whatever you want to treat. And we also want to uh, be able to recruit to the trials which are ongoing with our Exxon 20 insertions, which are showing some, some, some variable activity and in some cases, very nice activity. So with that, uh, Raphael, I'd like to thank okay. you very much uh, for your presentation. And we'll move to our second speaker of the uh, session, uh, Dr. Alistair Greystoke. And I've tasked you, Alistair, with speaking to us, not about the mutations, but the splices and the fusions that you all need to know about. So Alistair, over to you. So uh, thank you very much, Sanjay, and thank you very much to the BTOG committee to, uh, for asking me to talk about this very interesting area. So, you know, we've already heard that we've got an increasing number of targeted agents available to our patients. And I'd point out, we've already mentioned ALK and ROS1, which are fusions where we see very high response rates, sometimes with very long periods of disease control. And so today I'm going to talk to you about some other areas where we see abnormalities, a couple of fusions and um, a splice variant where we have agents coming through and we'll be assessing what the response rates are how effective these are and what the toxicities are. So I'm going to start with the N-TRAC inhibitors because these again are available within the NHS today. If you find one of these patients, you can treat it and then move on to RET and MET where there are inhibitors in advanced development already getting FDA approval and where hopefully we'll get access in the UK in the next year or so. So to start with N-TRAC, there are actually three N-TRAC genes, N-TRAC 1 to 3. All genes have a similar purpose, which is involved in development of this, uh, the central nervous system and um, maintenance of neurons plus neuronic plasticity. And what you can see uh, in a similarity that we see with ALK and fusions is that you can, uh, sorry, ROS and ALK is that you see an abnormal fusion where the gene is driven forward um, and you basically lose control. And that then leads to signaling down a number of oncogenic pathways, including the RAS-RAF path pathway that we already heard about, also the PI3 kinase a pathway and uh, um, in PLC pathway. So overall, it leads to uh, survival. And um, the interesting thing about uh, this particular abnormality is it does seem to be an oncogenic fusion that you see across a number of different cancer types. There's some very rare cancers where we see very high preponderance, one rare type of breast cancer, a rare type of head and neck cancer. But then you also see it in very low proportions across a range of the solid tumor types, including colorectal cancer, um, uh, lung cancer, etc. And so I'm going to talk to you about two agents which have been, have been evaluated in phase one and phase two trials. I'm not going to be able to show you any phase three data today, and we can maybe discuss that when we get to the discussion. But so laratrectinib is a licensed agent that uh, is licensed to cross for N-TRAC fusions in any histology. You can see the data there shown across a number of tumor types in 107 patients where the response rate was 74% with very few patients having primary progression as you would like to see with a precision therapy. And you can see a very impressive uh, progression-free survival of 28 months in that uh, group. We have actually seen separately presented the small number of patients with lung cancer in that group and the response rate there was 71% and they haven't reached the progression-free survival yet. So uh, within that small cohort, very similar data. There's another agent that is also available in the NHS, again was uh, assessed in a phase one, phase two uh, trials across a number of different histologies again, including a small number of lung cancers. You can see that in the whole cohort, the response rate was 64%, very similar to what was seen with larotrectinib, and a median progression-free survival in this study of just over 11 months. And again, at ESMO, we saw the, uh, the lung-only cohort. Again, you can see it's a very small number of patients. Most of the patients um, experiencing tumor shrinkage, a response rate of 69% and a progression-free survival of 14.9 months. So showing that these two drugs are effective in a lung cancer population. These are now both available in the NHS um, for patients who have explored other lines of therapy. 
But we do need to be aware that this is a very rare subgroup. It's certainly less than 1% of our patients, probably less than half percent of our patients with lung cancer. Um, and reached in a very similar population for what we might see for within the uh, ALK and the ROS1s in terms of the sort of uh, younger never smokers. I've discussed, shown there the dose reduction rates, which are relatively low, and certainly the discontinuation due to adverse events are very low. And the main uh, side effect that you need to be aware of is uh, given the importance in the brain, you do see some CNS toxicity, both dizziness and cognitive toxicity which seems to be more marked in the older patients. So you do need to consent for that. So that's Entrac, very rare, but treatable today. The next uh, abnormality I want to talk about again is another fusion, and this is RET. And you may remember this from sitting your MRCP exams. So this is the gene that is abnormal in the multiple, multiple endocrine neoplasia 2 syndrome, but it is also very commonly uh, mutated in thyroid cancers. However, what we see in lung cancer is not a mutation, but as similar to what we're talking about with NTRAC and ROS and ALK, we see an activating fusion that leads to ligand independent activation. And that again drives forward a number of those pathways that we're familiar with, such as the RAS-RAF pathway, the JAK-STAT pathway, uh, et cetera, that lead to tumor growth, aggression and spread. And so you see fusions in, in lung cancer in one or two percent of patients. You do also see these in other tumor types, really. And interestingly, you can also see these fusions uh, emerging as a resistance mechanism to other targeted treatments such as EGFR and ALK. So again, I'm going to talk to you about two agents that are uh, in development. But first off, I just wanted to highlight this paper that was presented two, three years ago. So um, there were a number of the uh, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the sort of multiple target tyrosine kinase inhibitors that had activity against RET. And so this was registry data on just over 50 patients looking at a number of agents that had been said to have RET activity. And unfortunately, we saw a response rate of under 30%, it was tw I think it was 24%, and a progression, medium progression-free survival of only a couple of months. So it didn't look at that point as, to, as that RET was a particularly good target. But as we've got more specific drugs coming through, and this is the first one I'm going to talk to you about, pralcetinib, uh, you can see here a very impressive waterfall plot with a response rate of uh, 57%. Now, uh, the graph in the bottom right is showing duration of response. I could not find the progression-free survival graph or that this has been reported, but you can see that responses can be very uh, long-lasting. Uh, the interesting thing about both pralcetinib and the next drug I'm going to talk to you about is they've looked at activity both in the treatment naive and uh, the um, previously treated cohorts, and it does seem that possibly the treatment naive uh, patients may have a higher response rate, so a 70% with pralcetinib in the treatment naive setting compared to 57%. And the second agent that is coming forward is selpocatinib. So again, you can see a very similar response rate with the vast majority of patients uh, experiencing tumor shrinkage, seeing tumor progression very rare. So formal response rate in previously treated patients, 64% and up to 85% in treatment naive and with a median progression-free survival in this study of 16 and a half months. So again, uh, these, these look like very uh, interesting agents that um, hopefully will come forward to our patients this year. Once again, uh, this patient population does seem to be enriched into the younger never smoker adenocarcinoma population, as we've discussed with the EGFR, ALK and the NTRAC population. But this is probably more common, you know, one to 2% of patients than the NTRAC population. Uh, again, I've shown you some comparative data, but you can see that the side effect that you need to be thinking about for these patients is, is hypertension. So this is the on-target side effect of hitting some of these kinases, um, needing to, a dose reduction in about 30% of patients, but relatively rare that you actually need to discontinue treatment because of this. And do note that pralcetinib does have some pneumonitis as we sometimes see with other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and that probably accounts for the slightly higher discontinuation rate in that cohort. Uh, the last one I wanted to talk to you about, and this is a very different biology, is MET. So most of you may be aware of, of MET as a, an oncogene across a number of cancer types and also as a resistance mechanism to some of our previous uh, um, abnormalities that we treat, as, for example, EGFR. 
So MET is uh, another one of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It's signaled by both hepatocyte growth factor, but also as autocrine signaling. And again, um, when it's active, it leads to all kinds of biological processes that helps drive the cancer forward, including EMT, MET, but also the, you know, the jack stack pathway, the FAC pathway, and um, the PI3 uh, kinase pathway. So a broad range of activity. Now here we are not talking about fusions, and this is where the splice from my title comes in. So what happens in this one is that you see abnormalities in the intronic areas surrounding exon 14. So what those mean is that basically when after the DNA is translated into RNA, it then gets spliced into the final version, so transcribed, it then gets spliced into the final version that then gets translated into the protein. And what happens if you have a range of abnormalities, and these can be mutations, they can be deletions, they can even be insertions, is that you lose that exon 14. And that exon 14 is very important because it's where ubiquitin, which is the breakdown signal, part of the breakdown machinery binds. And so if you don't have exon 14, the ubiquitin can't bind, the MET does not get broken down, it accumulates in the cell, and then this cancer cell can use that to drive forward. The only way you're going to be able to pick these up is with next generation sequencing techniques because you see a broad range of different mutations or abnormalities that can lead to activation. So uh, a number of you will be aware that chrysostomin was originally developed as a met uh, as a met targeting drug and it has been evaluated in exon 14 skip lesions with a response rate of 32%, which is slightly less than we've seen with some of the other cohorts and a median um, progression-free survival of 7.3 months. In the bottom, you'll see some of the data from the UK Matrix paper, which uh, Sanjay and I are recruiting onto. And again, there was a small cohort in this where we saw a slightly higher response rate with Prozosnib of just over 60%, with a median progression-free survival of nearly exactly a year. However, we are now got more specific uh, uh, MET tyrosine kinase inhibitors coming through. There's two of them, again, I'm going to talk to you about today. This is the first one, topotinib. So we've got published data. And in this study, you could enroll if you had met exon 14 found on your tumor or on liquid biopsy or on both. And the data is, is shown. And uh, basically, the response rate seemed to be relatively similar, whether you found it on tumor or in blood at 46%, with a median progression-free survival of uh, between 8 and 11 months, depending which cohort you looked at. So a, a reasonable oncogene, but maybe not quite the length of disease control that we were seeing with when I was talking about some of those other abnormalities earlier. And lastly, capmatinib, again, in the same evaluated in the same population, again, evaluated both in previous treatment and uh, treatment naive. Again, a slight suspicion that in the treatment naive, the response rate was higher as 68% compared to 41%. And the progression-free survival was over a year in the treatment-naive cohort as compared to 5.4 months. So again, the suggestion that uh, we might want to use these drugs early in the patient's development, sorry, early in the patient's treatment pathway. And I've summarized all that data there, but I'm sure you'll be aware from your use with chrysotinib, that's the sort of MET side effect that you see is edema, and that is seen across um, these drugs. Also, for some of them, you do see pneumonitis, as we see with tyrosine, other tyrosine kinase inhibitors at, at low rate. So um, there's some questions that are important to our development and to getting these funded. As you've seen, I've just shown you phase one, phase two, uh, two uh, cohorts. We haven't seen phase three data. We don't know what the efficacy of our standard of care treatments in these populations is. That's very important in terms of the questions that Sanjay was asking Raphael about what we do. If we find these in our patients, do we go for standard treatment first? But particularly when we're going to NICE and asking for funding, showing that these, uh, these may be cost-effective drugs that we should be using in the NHS. I've talked about the optimal line of therapy, but you know, most of these studies were done in America, in specialist centers, in a phase one, phase two population. Are they going to be applicable to our patients that we see day in, day out in the UK? And we're just starting to learn about the mechanisms of resistance to these agents. So uh, to summarize, there are some extra pieces of the pie. I haven't even included KRAS for that. Um, you know, my presentation is by no means comprehensive. Also, for those targets, there are a number of other agents coming through. Importantly, most of these do have uh, CNS activity. We do see high rates of CNS disease in the NTRAC and the RET population, and they have presented activity in those areas. 
Retin and NTRAC are enriched in the same sort of population we normally look at, the EGFR and ALKS, but importantly, the METs are not. So the average age of a MET fusion patient is 72, which is similar to what the patients we see on average with lung cancer in the UK. And um, a lot of them will be ex-smokers, so it, it's not your standard oncogenic population. But importantly, and as, as Raphael finished, if we don't test for these patients, we won't find them, we can't treat them. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, Alistair, thank you for that excellent presentation. And I think what we'll do is we'll move swiftly on to uh, Rachel. Um, Rachel Butler, uh, many of you will know, is the uh, director of the Southwest London, uh, Southwest uh, GLH. Rachel, we've heard about these drugs. How will we find these suitable patients? Over to you. Thanks, Sanjay. And it's a real pleasure to be here this evening. So thanks for the invitation. So um, you've heard about all of these uh, various different molecular and genomic um, genes and mechanisms that we need to be detecting. So I'm now gonna give you a little bit of a delve into some genomic technologies to consider how we might identify these patients. So I've pinched a couple of slides from Sanjay. So this gives you an, an idea of all of the different genes and mutations that we need to identify. So this has grown quite a lot over the last 10 years when we just used to try and identify good old EGFR mutations. So things are changing a lot and they're literally changing by the year when each year we have to identify a new set of mutations and we have to sequence a different gene. And again, this is one of Sanjay's slides. So you can also see that um, even though we know about a lot more genes which are driving non-small cell lung cancer, we now have a larger number or a growing number of biomarkers which we know are associated with treatment. So we now have those standard of care biomarkers down the left-hand side and an increasing number of therapies which are associated with those genomic markers, some of which you've now heard about this evening. So our job in the genomic laboratories is to hopefully provide you with services so that we can give you the information that you need to know about the various genomic markers so that you can make the best decisions for your patients. So for anybody who hasn't heard, I'll just spend a couple of minutes on how the new genomic laboratory hubs are set up in England. I would say that the services in the devolved nations are really quite similar and we're all using a, a similar strategy. So in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland as the um, genomic laboratory hubs in England. So we now have seven genomic laboratory hubs in England. And as you can see there, they're, they're um, organized across the map of England, as you can see there. So in the Southwest where I work, we have a single genomic laboratory hub, which is based in Bristol. And from Bristol, all of the tests, the cancer tests are provided for the whole of the region. So from Cheltenham all the way down to Peninsula. We have a second laboratory in Exeter, but it isn't providing any of the cancer services. Now, all of the genomic laboratory hubs are working to the same specification. And the specification is the National Genomic Test Directory. So this is basically our manual and it's a list of all of the cancer tests that we have to deliver. And you can find this sim simply by Googling National Genomic Test Directory. And the test directory was put together by a series of clinicians, pathologists, scientists like myself, even, even pharma contributed. And that is a long list. I'll show you what it is for non-small cell lung cancer. It's a long list of, um, of different tumor types and associated genes that we felt at the time, and this was put together in 2018, that we felt were the relevant genes that we should be testing for, for each tumor type. And it gets updated on an annual basis. And a quick plug, the window is currently open for putting in applications for updating the, um, the National Genomic Test Directory. So there's an application process, but you have to get your applications in by the 31st of January. So if you think that there are uh, genomic targets that ought to be on the test directory, now's your opportunity to be sending your applications in. So the combination of the genomic laboratory hubs working to the National Genomic Test Directory means that we can deliver our cancer services to clinical teams like yourself. 
We also deliver education. We work with our cancer alliances and we work with our pharma colleagues as well. And I would say that the devolved nations work in exactly the same way. Uh, they're working to very similar lists of tests in terms of the services that they're providing. So the test directory for non-small cell lung cancer currently looks like this. Um, but as I say, I, I'm expecting it to get updated. So the tests that we're currently uh, commissioned to provide, so that means we're, we're funded to provide, are those that you can see down the middle column, that's the essential gene target. So it's a relatively small list. And we've heard about some of these during this evening's meeting so far. So you can see good old EGFR on there, but you've also got NTRAC on there, which we've just heard about. You've also got BRAF on there and KRAS on there as well. The desirable gene target list, the GLHs don't have to deliver, but it, these are gene targets that we're aware of are in the mix and they're um, gene targets that we've got to keep an eye on. And if we happen to uh, have sequenced them, we can provide that information back to our clinical teams because they might be helpful for you in terms of putting a patient onto a clinical trial or for your research. And it will be those desirable gene targets that will move to become essential gene targets for the future. And a quick update on NTRAC, which Alistair has already told you about, because this was the latest addition to the test directory, not just for non-small cell lung cancer, but for many solid tumours. You've already seen this data as Alistair has just presented it to you, so I'll move swiftly on. But the position for NTRAC testing across the GLHs at the current time is that we rolled out phase one testing in April 2020. So this was when it was NTRAC um, inhibitors were first approved on the CDF. They were first approved for a smallish group of patients, which was our phase one testing. So just those patients which had a high incidence of NTRAC gene fusions. Then late Later than that, in August 20, we then increase the number of patients for whom we can now deliver NTRAC testing for, so a much larger group of patients. And I'm giving this a bit of a plug because at the moment, we're really not receiving this many patients, not in my region, but according to my colleagues, not in their regions either. So in fact, we can provide NTRAC gene fusion testing for any patients um, with locally advanced or metastatic disease for whom standard ther therapies have failed. So that's an awful lot of, lung, of um, lung cancer patients for whom they can access an NTRAC gene fusion test. And we're just not seeing these patients being tested at the current time. And I'll tell you a little bit more about how you can access that testing, which is freely available to you currently. So this is our basic gene panel strategy. Um, which all of the GLHs are either providing now or should be providing over the coming months. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of the rollout of our strategy has been delayed uh, due to COVID. Now, this strategy will be delivered for all of um, our solid tumours within a GLH. So whether it's for non-small cell lung cancer or colorectal or ovarian. So essentially, a sample will be received by the laboratory. So this will be a paraffin fixed tissue sample. We'll assess that sample to ensure that there is tumor within it and we'll prepare that sample. We'll extract the DNA and or RNA. And all of those samples will be sequenced for something like a 500 gene panel. Could be, few, could be fewer genes. In, in some centers, it might be 250 or 300 genes. Having sequenced that sample, we'll then perform bioinformatic analysis and we'll just look at the genes which are relevant to that particular tumour type. So for non-small cell lung cancer, it will be those essential and desirable genes which I showed you in the test directory. And then depending on our results, we'll then issue a clinical report. And that clinical report will tell you about standard of care treatment, licensed treatments, which may mean that you, you can give your patient um, a, a compassionate use, or it may um, tell you about a clinical trial. The really great thing about this particular strategy is that we don't throw that data away. So even though we've only reported on a selected number of genes, it may be 10 or 20 genes for non-small cell lung cancer, 
the rest of the 500 gene panel data is held within the GLH. So if you go along to ASCO or ESMO and find out about a new gene, you can come back to the GLH and say, can you tell me about the last 100 patients that I've tested and did you detect any mutations in that particular gene? So we can go back and reanalyze that data at any time and pull out patient samples for you and tell you about patients who may have a mutation in that particular gene. Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm just going to turn that off. There you go. Would you believe it? So to break this down a little bit further, um, in actual fact, when we receive our non-small cell lung cancer patient samples, we split this next generation sequencing down two different routes. So in fact, when samples are received, we split the sample into two. Half the sample um, has RNA extracted and half the sample has DNA extracted. The sample which has DNA extracted is sequenced for what we call SNVs and CNVs. So this is small nucleotide variants and copy number variants. So this is where we're looking for changes in the DNA where maybe a G is substituted for a T or TG is inserted for an AT. So those tiny changes in the DNA sequence and copy number variants are when you get amplifications or deletions. So you're probably all used to those kind of changes. So those are the kind of changes that you'd expect to see in EGFR when you're looking for an exon 19 deletion, you're looking for an exon 20 insertion, or maybe you're looking for one of those KRAS G12C mutations. We take half of the sample and we extract the RNA from it. And from the RNA, we also perform next generation sequence, but this time we're looking for gene fusions. So by looking at the RNA, we can specifically to see, to see if there is a gene fusion between ALK and another par partner, or ROS, or RET, or NTRAC, or in fact, any other gene fusions. And by splitting the sample into DNA and RNA, we can specifically look for different types of mutational mechanisms. So it's just to give you an understanding of even though it might be described as next generation sequencing, our strategy is to actually split the um, sample into two and perform two different types of sequencing. To give you a little bit more understanding about our strategy, because we perform RNA sequencing and RNA sequencing will detect all gene fusions, this is why we uh, believe it's, there's no point in using an immunohistochemistry strategy. If you perform immunohistochemistry, you'd have to, have to perform IHC for ALK, for ROS, for RET, for all three NTRAC fusions. So that's NTRAC1, NTRAC2, NTRAC3. So you're already up to six different immunohistochemistries. And that's quite a lot of tissue, plus all the fish that you might have to use as well it were you to get a result which would require fishing on top of the immunohistochemistry. And you can perform a single RNA next generation sequencing run with the added bonus that as well as detecting gene fusions in ALK, ROS, RET and NTRAC, you might detect another gene fusion as well. And as we all know, there are plenty other gene fusions out there. We detected one in FGFR the other week, which meant the patient could get enrolled in a different clinical trial. So the beauty of next generation sequencing is you find out about so much more. Technical difficulties at this end. So we've talked about next generation sequencing, but how long does it take? This is always a, a question, it takes too long. Now I know you're all gonna be familiar with the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway, which is why I've put it up so small that you can't read it because you're all familiar with it. So we focused on the area in the blue box, which tells us that we've got to turn around our molecular testing in 10 working days. So this is a bit we're saying, right, we know we've only got 10 working days to perform this, this amazing next generation sequencing. So, Gene panel analysis, we're currently working to 10 days. NHS England have proposed that we do this in seven days, which is making us sweat a little. So we're kind of saying, well, maybe by the end of 2021, we'll be able to do this, but it is going to require 
that we have increased sample numbers and probably we're going to have to have our staff working over seven days, so working Saturdays and Sundays. Um, but so that's what we're working towards. But at the moment, we're trying to achieve, achieve a 10 day turnaround time. And what I should point out that this is from the time that a sample is received in the genomics laboratory. So if it takes two weeks from when the biopsy is taken to when that sample is first received in the genomics lab, of course, it's gonna take much longer for you to receive your result than just the 10, the 10 days turnaround time that it takes for next generation sequencing. But we know that this isn't going to work for all patients and there are going to be challenges. So a next generation sequencing strategy is great for very many patients and it's going to give us the kind of result that we need. So all of those molecular markers that we've talked about and we can turn it around in 10 days. However, there are going to be patients where even a 10 day turnaround time is not going to be good enough. And those urgent patient samples are going to require a quicker turnaround time. And there are also going to be samples where, in fact, the quality of the DNA or the quality of the tissue means that we're not going to have sufficient material in order to be able to perform our next generation sequencing. So for both of those situations, we need to have an alternative strategy. So this is where we have a kind of a combination strategy and a salvage pathway. So if we're not able to perform our next generation sequencing, which I've already described to you, and we have either insufficient material or we have an urgent request, we propose that we're going to deliver what we're calling our salvage pathway. And this has been agreed across all of the genomic laboratory hubs. We're all going to do the same thing. And in these situations, we'll use a targeted mutation strategy and we will all test for the same genes in the same order. So we would all test for EGFR first and then ALK and then ROS because we, we would uh, we decide to test for these on the basis that they, those genes would be the ones that we'd be most likely to find a mutation in. If the G12C mutation in KRAS gets licensed, we'd probably move that up the pecking order because we'd be more likely to find a G12C mutation. So that's the strategy that all of the GLHs are taking. Thought I'd just pop this slide in there. Uh, the vast majority of the results that will be coming out of our next generation sequencing strategy are going to be straightforward and we'll be able to issue a report to our clinical teams, which is straightforward and should hopefully the, the results should make good and easy sense. But we do recognise that sometimes because of this genomic strategy, um, sometimes our results will be a little bit more complex. And in this case, we've set up something known as GTABs, so Genomic Tumor Advisory Boards. And we would take those results to the GTAB, which will be happening weekly. We'd let you know that your result is being discussed at a GTAB, so which will give us opportunity to discuss that result for the genomic scientist, the pathologist and oncologist to discuss the result to ensure that we hopefully are able to make sense of it before that result is released to you. Because uh, as I say, sometimes you end up with multiple mutations, which maybe doesn't make all that much sense. All of the GLHs are now putting out their communications. They all have a website where hopefully you can find information about request forms, information about the services that are available. Please don't all um, email Laura. She's only in the Southwest. So to sum this up, we've got an increasing range of molecular markers, which you need to test in order to give your patients the best treatment. Um, it's really important that we meet clinically relevant turnaround times and we've got to maximise small amounts of tissue. So we believe that the best way of doing this is to deliver large gene panels where we can detect um, single nucleotide variants, gene amplifications, copy number variants and also gene fusions. But we can't use this strategy in isolation. We have to always have also have salvage pathways which will use single gene tests which we'll use for urgent samples and also for those inadequate samples. So I'll leave it there, but I'm very happy to take any questions. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, uh, uh, Rachel. I'll invite Alistair back. Uh, we are running a bit late, so I'll take Chairman's liberty to add uh, three minutes on to the end of this uh, uh, webinar. Lots of questions coming in about testing, lots of people whinging that they don't get NGS, lots of people whinging that their NGS takes four weeks, 
why should I have NGS when I can get an alkyl HC in uh, 24 hours, Rachel? I don't know where to start. So I suppose um, the GLHs are in different stages of development. Um, there are some GLHs, um, you know, I, I don't want to name them all, there are some GLHs that are really flying, um, they've got their gene panel set up and they're delivering a good service. There are other GLHs who are still in stages of developing their gene panels, um, but I think they will all get there. I think the other issue that we have across England is that some of the GLHs across their geography are struggling with the fact that we still have some laboratories who are insisting on delivering single gene tests. Um, and if and so and the GLHs are trying to deliver large gene panel tests, but local laboratories are delivering single gene tests. Um, and I, I think I would say to you, you've got to say to your local lab, I want a large gene panel because your patient is missing out. If, if you're, you know, you're sending your sample to your local lab, you're getting a single gene test, they're only doing EGFR. Even if they're only doing EGFR and they're doing it on an adilla, it may be very quick, but you're not finding out about whether your patient has a, um, you know, they may have a, an EGFR test, but it, it's a very quick and dirty EGFR test. You don't get the details and the characterization of mutations and you don't find out about the rest, the rest of the genes as well. So I, I think you should be trying to put your foot down and say, please send it to the GLH instead. Okay, thank you. And um, if, you if you detect a ROS or ALK fusion uh, by RNA in NGS, uh, somebody's asked, does it need IHC validation or is that the definitive answer? No, NGS is the, is the definitive answer. NGS is the definitive answer. And personally, I love NGS for fusions because actually you can tell what the variant is. And we know that in ALK fusions, we can detect the resistance mechanism by knowing what variant of EML4 ALK is. So for me, it's absolutely uh, critical to, to, to know about this. I'm going to bring Alistair into the uh, discussion. Um, Alistair, can, can you, who are these patients that are REP positive and MET positive and NTRAC positive? Um, uh, how can we really optimize our testing for this? Should all patients be getting NGS? Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts? So, so I think traditionally we thought that the ones we really wanted to, to do it for were, you know, the young never smokers. And if you'd asked me to give this talk a couple of years ago, I'd, I would have been saying those are the ones we should prioritize. But definitely when you start to look at the meta abnormalities, they are a different population. Um, uh, uh, you know, they, they certainly are older. Um, all the ones I've had have been smokers, ex-smokers, and that seems to be the case even in the American series. Um, and, and, and the other thing is they're not necessarily adenocarcinomas. So, you know, sarcomatoids are enriched for metexon 14 skip lesions. Even the NTRAX, there's reports of other histologies rather than adenocarcinoma. So I'm afraid we're, we're, we're past the tipping point now. I agree with Rachel where you know lung cancer should probably be the next generation sequencing for all and unfortunately if we're not delivering that and i don't think we are delivering that i agree with rachel we're not doing the right thing by our patients and we need to be pushing um not whinging trying to be helpful and productive and saying this is where we are this is where we want to be what can we do to move it forward so that's about engaging with us as oncologists with our genomics laboratory and with our pathologist to find out what's going on and what status our patch is at to optimize the sample uh, flow. Rachel, you know, do, is it realistic that we're going to get to seven to eight, ten day work work uh, work turnaround time for NGS? Is actually is that just pie in the sky? And that's what you guys are coming up with because you need the funding for your labs. Um, no, it's de it's definitely realistic. Um, and I'm I'm trying not to be biased here, but um, it's definitely realistic. The, the actual process from a receipt of a sample to getting an NGS result takes five days. So of course it's realistic. And my vision for my lab is that we run NGS every two days. So that easily allows us to turn it around in seven days. Um, the problem is that we're not receiving enough samples. And the, but there are enough samples. So with lung and colorectal and melanoma and ovarian, so there's enough samples across my region. And I've actually got the smallest region. So across all of the other regions, there's not, not there's enough samples. The issue is that some a lot of the samples are being tested in smaller labs across each region. So what that means is we're not receiving enough samples to fill our batches, to fill our runs. So we're having to wait to fill our batches, which means that that extends the reporting times for the samples that are being sent to the GLHs. 
So if we could persuade those smaller local labs to stop doing those single targeted gene tests, which isn't good for the patients anyway, and send them to the to their major hubs, then we'd get better turnaround times for patients. Great, thank you very much. And Alistair, is this all pie in the sky? Last question of the session, is this all pie in the sky? Uh, or are these drugs really available, gonna make a difference? Uh, or is this, this is academic crap, or is this really for every single lung cancer oncologist to be aware of? What's your view? So I, you know, I, I'm absolutely, you know, we can treat these patients. Um, you know, I picked up a, on a CFDNA analysis on a patient the other day, a Metexon 14, and being able to get compassion access supply to a drug. You know, Crisostom is a drug we use all the time, and we saw it, it, certainly my experience of using it in the matrix population has been, you know, good responses, including in brain disease. So yeah, you know, these patients are there. Um, we need to need to find them. And then if you find one, if you're not comfortable with treating them, you know, reach out to somebody like me or you and, and we'll hold your hand and enable you to, to make sure you get the best treatment for the patient. Great. Thank you. And with that, um, I think the, the message is hunt, find, treat, and uh, the treatments uh, may uh, be around. Uh, with that, I'd like to thank our speakers very much for their attention uh, and the delegates also for your attention. Uh, I'd like to flag up our next BTOG webinar. It's an exciting time in lung cancer. We've got the post previously postponed 2020 World Lung Cancer Conference being run to Singapore time uh, in a couple of weeks or so. And uh, we have our next BTOG uh, update, which will present our updated uh, data. And that will be presented on the uh, 3rd of February at the usual time of 1730, hopefully for within uh, the hour. It's going to be an exciting update. We've got data on screening, we've got data on molecular targeted therapies, and we've got the confirmed trial uh, which is being presented in relapsed mesothelioma. So with that, I'd like to thank our speakers and thank you all very much and hope you have a great evening. Thank you.